Good morning. It is, uh, it's good to see everybody. I know I say this pretty much every time I preach, but I really am always thankful every Sunday uh, that we have to get together to just worship the Lord uh, as a family. These are really encouraging times for me every week. I love getting to sing praise to the Lord, and um, I really love God's Word, like, because I love God. And uh, His Word teaches us so much about who He is. And uh, that, that's really why we strive to, to just go through His Word and open it plainly, read it together, understand it, and form our lives around it. And that's really what I want to challenge you to do this morning. I want to warn you, uh, the story we're going to be going through today is like a pretty heavy story. Um, it's difficult. There's some like kind of disturbing stuff uh, that we're going to be going through this morning. It's probably going to make some of you uncomfortable. Uh, but I believe that God's Word is powerful. It challenges us, but it also comforts us. And it points us to the one true God of the universe. So my encouragement to you this morning is really to engage with Scripture. Let the Bible be what teaches you about who God is. Even if there's some things that you don't necessarily like or He does things different than how you would do them, um, my hope and my prayer is that we would gain a greater understanding of who God is this morning, a greater appreciation of that, uh, that we'd actually be able to love Him more deeply and worship Him more fervently because we're able to see His goodness even through something as dark and difficult and as messed up as uh, what we'll be going through today. Um, so with that being said, I want to uh, have a lot to cover this morning. I will warn you, it's probably be a little bit longer than most of the sermons that I preach. Uh, maybe not, but I, my guess is that it will be. Um, but with that being said, I, I want us to really look at four major things about God this morning. We're going to see His patience, His wrath, His power, and His mercy. So with that being said, let's pray and then we'll dive into it. Um, God, you are worthy of all of our praises. Thank you that we get to sing them together. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we get to live lives of praise. and um, We can praise you in ways more than just our voices, God, but we can praise you with the um, way that we think, with the way that we speak to each other, with the way that we serve each other. Um, God, even just with the way that we engage in this time right now, we can worship you uh, by choosing to focus in and uh, really give heed to your word, to pay attention to it, to learn it, and to apply it. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just be with us here this morning. Um, I know that you're in this room, and I pray that you would move powerfully in our hearts today. Uh, we love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so this whole school year, if you've been with us, uh, we have been going through the book of Genesis. And for a long time now, we've been hanging out with this guy named Abraham. He was Abram uh, initially, now we call him Abraham. He had a little name change. And uh, the reason that he's so important, and we've been reading about him so much and spending so much time on him, is that he figures into God's grand plan to bless human beings. We actually saw this in creation, right, where God has this desire to bless. He creates this creation that's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. We see that uh, right after God creates them, he blesses them, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Um, so we see that God wants to give us that which is good, but we have also seen this tragic reality over and over throughout Genesis that human beings have rejected what God said is good and gone after their own ways instead, and that has brought a lot of problems. We've seen God respond. Uh, we've, we've seen him punish in certain times, but every time there's always this new uh, way that he wants to try to keep blessing human beings. And eventually in Genesis 12, we get to this guy named Abram. And God promises that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So we know that his descendants, or at least a descendant of his, is going to bless the whole world in some way. Now that requires, of course, a descendant. And uh, we've been hanging out with Abram uh, for a long time. And he and his wife at this point are in their, his wife is in her 80s, he's in his 90s, and they still don't have any children. All right, that's old. 80s, 90s, a lot of people don't even make it that long. They are still childless at this time. Now, Abraham at this point does actually have a son by another woman, uh, but this, this fulfillment of the promise is going to come through his wife, and she still has no children. They've been waiting on the fulfillment of this promise for decades at this point in the story, and finally, last week, Trevor preached a sermon where we saw that uh, Abraham and his wife were visited by these three guys um, 
they were angelic messengers. One of them is actually referred to as the Lord. And they tell him that a year from that time, they're going to return and he's going to have a son. So this long-awaited son is finally going to be coming a year from this time of that visitation. But while they tell him that good news about the future, they also warn him about something else that's coming up in the even uh, more nearer future. And as the conversation's wrapping up, this is actually what we read. I'm going to go back to Genesis 18. Trevor hit this last week, but we need to reread it. Um, So Genesis 18, verse 16, this is their conversations wrapping up. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if they have done if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. All right, so as their, their conversation's wrapping up, God's like, hey, I'm about to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah and see if what's going on there is really as bad as everything that I've been hearing. Now in this, we saw this reiteration that God is going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, but we also see this investigative uh, mission that God is, is going on to really check out just how bad things are in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Trevor preached on some of this text last week, so I'm not going to get into all the detail of it, but when uh, Abraham hears this, he's kind of concerned that, that God's going to go down and, and check this out because it implies, okay, he's going to act on this as well. And does that mean he's going to wipe out this whole city if the city's wicked? I mean, what if there's still a few righteous people? Is he going to wipe it out? And so he says, if there's 50 people in the whole city, maybe the city's thoroughly wicked, but if even 50 of them are righteous, would you wipe it out? God says, no. Okay, well, like, what if they're missing five off that number? What's 45? God says, no, I won't, on the sake of the 45. He goes to 40, 30, 20, all the way down to 10. He says, if there's even 10 righteous people, are you going to destroy this city? And God says, no, I'll spare it on account of the 10. And so after that, Abraham kind of stops bargaining. Now, the reason I think Abraham is, is disturbed by the, the possibility of what's about to happen here, it's not just that he can't handle the idea that God would wipe away the righteous with the wicked, which is outside of the character of God, to, to not care about that and just say, I'm going to treat the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. But also, I think that Abraham is concerned about his nephew, Lot. His nephew, Lot, is living in the city of Sodom right now. We saw a lot earlier, if you were with us last semester, I said we've been going through Genesis for a while, but uh, back in Genesis 13, we see that Abraham and his nephew Lot, they'd been traveling together for a long time. God had blessed them. They started to get really big uh, herds of animals, and they, were, they both had such large herds that they couldn't share the land together anymore. Um, so they needed to part ways. They did it amicably, but we see this in Genesis 13, uh, when they were parting ways and trying to decide where to go, I'm going to take us back to that. Genesis 13, 10 to 13. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. All right, so we kind of got some foreshadowing there where Moses, who wrote Genesis, is helping us realize Lot went off to this place. He thought that it was really good. Matter of fact, he said it was well watered like the Garden of Eden. So almost like, man, this is like as good as it gets kind of a place. Physically, it looks like that on the surface, but the reality is he goes to live there, and what's the actual problem with it? It says, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. Now, Lot's living in this city, and uh, the text doesn't say this explicitly, but as I did my best to piece the timeline together, it seems that what we're about to read about today takes place roughly 24 years after the time that Abram and Lot parted ways. So for the last 24 years, 
and I would assume probably longer than that, but I can't tell for sure, the city of Sodom was full of people that were exceedingly wicked. I say this to show you that God is patient. The, the, the first attribute of God that I want us to really see from this story is that God is patient. He really does not delight in destroying the wicked. He gives chance after chance after chance to repent, but eventually time runs out. And I think that you see this even when God says he's going to go down and see about their outcry. That's a bit strange, isn't it? I'm going to go down and see. Like, doesn't God already see everything? I think that rather than this actually being something where God needs to gather more intelligence, what it actually is is I'm giving them one last chance. We know clearly from the Scriptures that God already sees everything. I could give you Scripture after Scripture, but just a, a couple examples. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. A couple weeks ago, I even preached on Genesis 16, where God saw Hagar, this, this pregnant woman who was struggling by herself in the desert, and he saw her and cared for her, and she said in Genesis 16, 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. There is no doubt, God is a God who sees. It's not like he doesn't already know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not unaware. It's not like he, he needs a little bit of a better view. He was fully aware, but I think what's going on and what he was about to do was so severe that he was giving them one last chance to prove him wrong and show that the city was not worthy of destruction. In short, I'd say that the visit from the angels was more of a test than it was a reconnaissance mission, but ultimately it served as both. It'd be the final deciding factor that closed the case on what should be done to Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's see how this goes. Uh, starting in Genesis 19. It says, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. We'll stop there for a second. Uh, things are off to a pretty good start on this mission, right? Actually, Lot's sitting there at the city gate. This is something people would do a lot in that time. Uh, he sees these visitors come into town. Uh, he greets them, and he shows them good hospitality, invites them into, their, into his home. He feeds them. And by the way, there's no indication whatsoever that Lot has any idea who these people are or that they're angels. Okay, uh, the Hebrew word for angel is actually the same word for messenger. Now we will see these were indeed angels, uh, but and we're going to see that they have some pretty serious power later. Um, but Lot doesn't probably have any idea about this. I think he's just practicing good hospitality, which was way more in line with a lot of the cultures around that time. Uh, Airbnb didn't exist yet, so it was kind of important uh, for people to show this kind of hospitality to people that would be traveling through towns. Um, there's actually a verse later on in the New Testament in Hebrews that shows us both the importance of hospitality to strangers and confirms the fact that angels can be so well disguised as humans to the point that you do not know that they are angels. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I think he probably had this story on his mind when he said that, but who knows? Maybe there's been other Maybe you've entertained an angel without knowing it. I don't know. Um, but clearly they have the ability to, to look exactly like they're human beings. So anyway, these angels say that, nah, we'd rather stay in the town square. Well, why? Remember, they're, they're there to, to gather intel and essentially test Sodom. It would seem like you'd get a better feel for the city by staying in the town square. Um, but Lot insists that they come in with his home. And uh, so eventually they oblige. And honestly, that wasn't going to matter because they were going to see the ugly culture of Sodom regardless of whether they stayed in Lot's home or in the town square. So let's keep reading. Pick back up at verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. 
and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. We'll stop there. You can see why this city was called exceedingly wicked. Right? That's how it was identified in Genesis 13. We see it again here. There is a ton of messed up stuff that this tells us about the city of Sodom. But I just want to point out a few ways uh, that this story shows us how sinful Sodom is and, w- and what was going on there. Uh, first, we see how violent the people are. One of the first things that sticks out to me is the violence of the town. They're willing to use force to get whatever it is that they wanted, even if they had to break down the door and harm people to do it. Uh, they promised to harm Lot, who stood in their way, saying that they would do worse to him than the men that they were going after. And also, this, this shows us that... Uh, They didn't exactly have good intentions towards the men that they were going after as well. What was driving their violence was their sexual desires. And we see that this city was absolutely filled with sexual immorality. Their passions were very, very strong, and they weren't going to take no for an answer from anyone that wanted to stand in the way of them fulfilling those passions. Now, when we talk about being driven by sexual desire, I want to be careful to point out that sex, as God designed it, is actually something that is very good and beautiful. God designed sex to be a uniting, life-giving act within a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. We see this reality in Genesis 2 when God made the woman out of man, but then brings them together in this beautiful act where they are united as one. We saw this way back at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 2, 22 to 24. It says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So here we see this idea of union and diversity. The man and the woman are different. She was taken out of man. They're different from one another, but they're also similar. And they come together in this act of sex where they image their creator as they were both made in his image equally. This is the kind of sexual union that God says is good and that God blesses. In fact, this kind of sexual union, weird as you might think it is, is the very first command that we see God give to human beings in the whole Bible. Look at this, Genesis 1, 27 to 28. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sex in a covenant of marriage between male and female is a good and God-ordained, blessed, even commanded thing. At creation. God's designed this as something that's good. He provided men with women to marry and women with men to marry. But the men of Sodom rejected God's good design for their own preference. And in so many ways, their own preference was different from God's good design for sex. We see that their, their idea was they wanted homosexual rather than heterosexual sex. Rather than having sex with women who God had designed for, for them to be complementary to them and them to be complementary to, they instead decided that they wanted different partners to go after men. We see also that the sex that they wanted was non-committal rather than uniting. When we were taught about sex and marriage in Genesis 2, we see that it's something that's actually very uniting. This idea of leaving a father and mother and becoming one flesh, it's, it's, it's big, it's huge. That's why I keep talking about this idea of it being within covenant. But that's not what they wanted. These men just entered their town a couple hours ago, and here they are pursuing sex with them. They wanted it to be public rather than intimate. The whole town is at this, at this house trying to bring them out. I mean, essentially what's, what's likely that they're going after is, is a gang rape orgy type of situation going on in the public town square. They, ra- rather than it being an intimate act between a husband and wife, they wanted group sex. 
And they wanted it to be forced rather than chosen. Instead of sex that was consensual between a committed husband and wife, honestly, they had rape on their minds. This sexually immoral behavior is just another example of rejecting the good direction that God has given and going after something that we think is better. And honestly, this is a theme that we have seen in Genesis, right? God providing the good, human beings rejecting that and going after their own ideas instead. We saw this with Adam and Eve, right? What does God do? He makes all of this great creation. He, he, the, everything that he makes is good. He says, I give you every tree, every, every seed-bearing plant, all this is yours to eat, except for this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. What do Adam and Eve do? They make their own assessment of oh, what's good. Even though God has given us all this good stuff, I'm going to decide that this fruit from this tree that I'm not supposed to eat from is good. We see this in Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. They traded what God said was good for their own assessment of what was good. We see this again uh, in Genesis 6, in a very strange passage, I preached on this a while back. You can go back and listen to the sermon. It was in the fall. Um, but there's this really strange passage where we see this idea that the, it's right before the flood, before God wipes out most of, of creation with the flood, where it talks about the sons of God going into the daughters of men. I'm not going to get into all that here. You'd have to go back and listen to the sermon or else I'm going to be preaching for hours. But um, what we do see is that these sons of God, which are most likely angels, are taking human wives for themselves. Like I said, yes, very strange story. But in Genesis 6 2, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. That word for beautiful there is actually the Hebrew word tov, which is the same word for good. So what we see is that these angels, these rebellious angels, are making their own assessment of what is good for them rather than what God has said. They cross into that which is forbidden, the same way that Adam and Eve crossed into that which is forbidden. And with that, this was actually one of the last straws that uh, came before God flooded the earth. We see a rejection of what God has designed going after their own way. We see this again at the Tower of Babel, right? The people are doing what? Trying to build a tower to heaven. Rather, th rather than doing what God said, which was what? Fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. They said, no, we're all going to congregate to one spot, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and we're going to build a tower to heaven. As a matter of fact, they did this so that they would not be scattered over the whole earth, which is what they were supposed to go do as they filled it and subdued it. So we see them trying to avoid this in Genesis 11:4, rejecting God's plan and design for them, and instead going after their own. And so God goes down, confuses the languages, and that's what helps people to scatter over the earth. Ultimately, what was behind all of this sin that we've seen in Sodom and that we've seen throughout Genesis is arrogance. It's a belief that the people know better than God. The prophet Ezekiel actually wrote about this. He mentioned Sodom in his book many, many years later. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. We see here that it was the arrogance of Sodom that led to all these other kinds of sins, including not helping the poor, which we didn't even see in our story that we read in Genesis, but clearly was a mark of this town. They were haughty, meaning they were arrogant. They were living <coughs> as their own gods. And this is what led them into all kinds of immorality, including the behavior that we've seen in our story today. You know, this is a scary thing because, to be honest, I see the same marks in our culture. A rejection of God and His way for thinking that we're God instead. Doing things our own way. And there are innumerable sins that this leads to. You know, some people will, will try to pinpoint, oh yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's all about uh, God destroying them because they were trying to do homosexual stuff. Or, you know, no, it's all because they were doing it because um, they didn't help the poor or whatever. That's not the point. The thing is, this city was exceedingly wicked. There were so many different kinds of sins that were going on there. The point is not to try and say, well, this sin, this particular sin was so bad that that's what got, what got God to destroy it. The reality is that sin had so thoroughly corrupted this city that their time had run out. 
and it made it worthy of divine destruction. They lived in a completely rebellious state against God in all areas of life. And this is what happens when God is cast aside and your own desires are what rule your life. Yet another tragic story to add to Genesis of people choosing their own way over the one that God has taught us. You know, even Lot, who seems to be the most righteous person in Sodom, right? Like he's the guy that invites these, these guys in, gives them a home to stay in, gives them uh, food to eat. He frankly doesn't come across very well in this story either. I mean, it's noble that he's trying to protect his guest, but what he offers is sickening. These guys are sitting here trying to rape his guests that have come in and says, no, 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 instead, let me give you my virgin daughters. How messed up is that? We see the city's pretty corrupt. Let's resume reading and see what happens. Verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? <laughs> Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were, where, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters, and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, Here's a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. We're going to stop there. So the angels have come down on this mission to investigate and I would say confirm the sin of Sodom. And the conclusion couldn't be more clear. God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this we see his wrath, his power, and his mercy. I want to speak on his wrath here for, for a little bit. You know, we, we serve an awesome God and we rightly sing praises to him. And I think our favorite things to sing praises about are things like his mercy, his grace, his kindness. <clears throat> Those are all awesome. I'm thankful to God for all these things. But, you know, there's also some characteristics about God that I think, at least in our modern culture, tend to make us kind of uncomfortable. And uh, God's wrath and anger seem to fall into that category. I think there's, we have a temptation to try and scrub these characteristics out of God when we talk to him about others. Or, sorry, talk about others to him. Talk to others about him. <laughs> They make us uncomfortable, right? That we're afraid that we're going to push people away from the Lord if we're honest about every aspect of who He is, including the fact that He has wrath for sin. And, and there's no doubt that God's wrath and His anger are scary and uncomfortable. We do not want to be on the wrong side of it. And we don't want anyone else really to be on the wrong side of it. And frankly, He doesn't either. But I think that we oftentimes fail to see the fact that God's wrath and anger are an important part of who He is. And it's essential that He expresses these things at times. 
He has to express them, actually, because he is love. In his essence, that is who God is. And it might seem like a strange statement to say that God, might ex- God would express his anger and wrath at times because he is love. You know, love in our modern conception seems so different from wrath and anger. And in some cases, probably even in most cases, where we see wrath and anger expressed by humans, love is lacking, sometimes even absent. Humans that lash out in wrath and anger rarely do so because their love is motivating them. Usually it's out of pride, selfishness, insecurity, discontentment, maybe from the influence of drugs and alcohol. I don't doubt that there's a lot of people in this room that have had very negative, painful experiences with human wrath that's been expressed in really irresponsible ways. It's the product of a quick temper and a wounded ego. But God's wrath is not like that. You know, we've actually already seen very clearly that God is patient. He describes himself this way in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Look at, this is him describing himself to Moses. It says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, <clears throat> who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. You see, our God is full of compassion and love and grace, but He still promises to punish the guilty. And these things, guys, they're they're not in contradiction with each other, but rather they actually support each other. There are times when anger over sin is appropriate. And there's a time when the most loving thing to do is actually to punish the guilty. John Mark Comer wrote a book called God Has a Name, and there's an excellent chapter on the wrath of God in that. And to quote him, he says, there are times when the healthy, emotionally mature response to evil is anger. You see, anger is not God's first reaction by any means. We see that he's slow to anger, but he's slow to anger. It's not that he's without anger. It's just that he's slow and measured in getting there. You know, compassion is God's first desire. Wrath is most certainly not his preference. It only comes when his offer for peace has been rejected over and over and over again. It's the last resort that he'll go to. You know, there's plenty of, of passages all throughout the Bible that show us this. <laughs> Ezekiel 33:11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God is not sitting there waiting to just bring the hammer down on people. What he's sitting there waiting for is people to turn, repent, come to him. But eventually there is a day that comes where, where he's, death and judgment come. He said, why will you die, O house of Israel? It will happen at some point. Jesus expresses the same kind of idea, right? It's not like Jesus and the God of the Old Testament are totally different. The same God. Look at, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37 to 38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. You know, this is after Jesus, is, this, this is Matthew 23, it's getting late in the gospel. He knows this is within the last week of his life. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He knows he's about to be crucified. And as he's done all of these miracles and done all of this teaching and all this kind of stuff to try and turn the hearts of the, the people back to the Lord and John the Baptist before him and the prophets before him, they've rejected, they've rejected, they've rejected, they've rejected. God's desire has been nothing but to gather them the way a mother hen gathers her chicks. But they were unwilling. And so he says, all right, your house is being left to you desolate. Eventually they would experience the wrath of God. And about 40 years later, the whole city of Jerusalem would be completely leveled. God is slow to anger. But he's slow to anger. His wrath will not be held back forever. And honestly, this is because he loves too deeply 
to allow evil to run unchecked. At some point, the clock runs out and it's time to pay for continued, unrepentant disobedience. That time had come for Sodom and Gomorrah. And it will come for the whole earth at some point as well. Peter warns us of this. He says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This is not a joke. All right, if you try to warn people about the, the fact that God's judgment is coming at some point, there is a good chance they won't take you seriously. Right? We saw that even here in this passage, right? Like, they're within less than an hour, probably, of this city getting destroyed. Lot comes, he tries to warn his sons-in-law, hey, get up out of here. God is about to destroy the city. He says they thought he was joking. They perished in the city. And you know, people today oftentimes have the same reaction. They, they think God's judgment is a joke. Uh, one example I think of, there's that, that hell is real billboard on I-71. It's become a meme. Like, people think it's funny. It's not funny. There's, this is a reality that, that hell is real, that, that God's judgment is real. But if we don't want to deal with the reality of it, the defense mechanism that we have is to dismiss it, to make jokes about it. You do that at your own peril. Don't mistake the patience of God for indifference. He loves too deeply to allow sin to go unpunished forever. Because sin is the enemy of love. And don't mistake God's patience for weakness either. As this story shows, God is not lacking in power. He destroyed the cities with fire and brimstone raining down from the sky. The language of this passage even says that God overthrew the cities, conjuring the image of him soundly defeating a foe that has rallied against them. And guys, this is the same thing that he's going to do at the end of time with all those that are opposed to his rule. Revelation shows us a picture of Jesus as a king on a horse that defeats the forces that are rallied against him once and for all. Opposing God by choosing to live in sin is not only foolish because you miss out on the abundant life and the good blessing that God wants you to live have in this life, but it's also foolish because it puts you in a rebellion against the almighty God of the universe who will put an end to all evil one day. This reality about the wrath and power of God is terrifying. And we have to ask, what can we do to save ourselves? We can't possibly defend ourselves against that kind of power. No more than the people of Sodom could protect themselves from the burning sulfur that rained down from the sky. The only hope that we have is the mercy of God. And thankfully, just as he's not short on power, he's not short on mercy either. We see that God is merciful and he wants to save. We saw that in his initial patience. Holding off, holding off, holding off the, the judgment of Sodom. We saw it in the way that Lot and all of his family were offered an escape. Did they really deserve that? Like when you look at Lot's behavior, do you even did, did is he really righteous? I know he is referred to in the New Testament at one point as being righteous, and he certainly was righteous compared to the people of Sodom. But dang, like what in the this, what he was offering with his daughters? You know, only God can question can, can answer that question of whether Lot was was deserving of of being saved there or not. But like. Him and his daughters were the only ones that made it out. The offer was actually extended, too, to the wife, who she didn't make it because she didn't listen, and she looked back. And then the sons-in-law, they didn't even try to get out. So that offer of mercy was even extended to, to people that clearly didn't deserve it. The daughters are the only ones that survive along with Lot. And speaking of them, the story actually isn't finished yet. There's one last sick twist left for us. Um, and uh, we're going to read that here. So let's pick it up at verse 30. It says, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. So the little town he wanted to go to anyway, he's afraid to stay there. He ends up going to the mountains anyway. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. 
Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, which is the father of the Ammonites of today. Okay. As I said, one last sick twist to the story. We see that these daughters escaped God's wrath on the city, but they certainly do not seem to be righteous. You know, Lot getting totally wasted is bad enough, but it's hard to even categorize how messed up it is that they would do this. And their excuse is, well, there's no men left. There's plenty of men left. There's just none that were left in Sodom and Gomorrah. The whole earth didn't experience this. How is it that these people got saved from the destruction of Sodom? Because it seems like they were just as deserving as the rest to die in that, that sulfur raining down from the sky. And you know, there's a few verses that we skipped over between the destruction of Sodom and the story about Lot and his daughters. I want to go back now because it's going to help us answer this question. Uh, Look at verses 27 to 29. This is right after the destruction of Sodom, but before that story about Lot's daughters. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. These verses suggest that Lot was brought out of the catastrophe because God remembered Abraham. You know, the day before Abraham had stood there, essentially acting as an intercessor on behalf of these cities. God, if there's even 50, if there's even 40, 30, 20, if there's even 10 righteous people, will you spare it? Now, he didn't ask God not to destroy the cities. But rather, he just spoke with God to assure himself that God would indeed be fair and just in the way that he dealt with the cities. He wouldn't wipe away the whole city if even ten righteous people were found there. In fact, it seems that maybe one righteous person was found there. You could argue about a lot, but God was more than fair in the way that he dealt with the cities. Not only was he just, but he was also merciful. He didn't destroy some people that deserved it. And that was because of their connection to the righteous one. You know, now Abraham was not perfectly righteous in the sense that he never sinned, okay? I'm not talking about Christ's righteousness. But Abraham is presented to us throughout Genesis as a righteous character. We even saw in Genesis 15, he he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. We've seen his shortcomings, no doubt. He's not perfect. But he's presented as a righteous character in Genesis. And now... We see that Lot and his daughters were saved from God's wrath on Sodom because God remembered Abraham. It wasn't their own righteousness, certainly not on the daughter's case, but rather their connection to the righteous one that allowed them to be saved. And in much the same way, this mirrors how we can be saved from the wrath of God that is coming at the end of time. We are not going to escape the wrath of God because of our own righteousness but rather because of the truly righteous one that we are connected to. And guys, this is the story of the gospel. It's beautiful to to, to see how this weaves itself all throughout the scripture. You see this reality of how, how desperately we are in need of a righteous one to save us. And that's exactly who Jesus is. You know, I told you Abraham is presented as a righteous character in Genesis, but we know he's not actually truly perfectly righteous. Maybe he was righteous enough to get Lot and his daughters out of Sodom, but to stand before God on Judgment Day, there's still plenty of his own sins to answer for. And the only one that's truly perfectly righteous that could stand before the Lord and free us from our sin is the only one that is ever able to actually live without sin, God himself. 
And that's exactly who Jesus is. You see, what we believe in the Gospel is that, that God came and took on flesh. He walked amongst us as a man, was tempted in every way as we are, yet He was without sin. And when Jesus went to the cross, He went to die. Death is the product of sin. It was entered into the world because of sin. Jesus is the only one that never had sin, but He went to die on the cross. Why? To hang there for the sins of you and for me. So that all of the punishment that we deserve, that, w- that should be meted out upon us, was put upon Jesus instead. And if we would put our faith in Him, if we would connect to Him, if we would be brought into Him, the, the Scripture speaks of us actually, those who put their faith in Christ as being in Christ, that we identify with Him, that we are now connected to the righteous one that can save us from the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus makes us righteous because he hung for our sins. And Romans 8.1 tells us, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one that shows the mercy of God and allows us to be saved from the wrath of God that is to come for sin. The band, you guys can come back up here as I'm, as I'm wrapping up. Just as Lot and his daughters were desperately in need of an intercessor, someone that would stand before them that was righteous to be able to save them from the wrath on that city, we are desperately in need of an intercessor, a mediator, someone that would stand before God for us and allow us to be saved from the consequences of our sin. And that is exactly what Jesus did. So we are going to remember that sacrifice that Jesus made today uh, through the practice of communion. As we enter into this last worship set, uh, there's going to be a couple tables back there that have broken bread, and uh, juice poured out. And uh, what you can do if you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus Christ was, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, rose again, and that if you put your faith in him, you are forgiven of your sin. If you're a Christian, you believe that, then I invite you at any point over these next few songs to go back there, to take uh, some of the bread, to dip it in the juice, and to eat it. And when you're doing that, you are remembering Uh, what Jesus did for you and his body being broken and his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus instructed his disciples the night that this practice was introduced shortly before he was going to be betrayed and crucified. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had given a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus' body was broken, his blood was poured out. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. And so when we take this, we remember what Jesus has done for us, but also we look forward to the future. He even speaks of it here, right? He says, I won't drink of this from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know, Lot, as he was, free, as he was fleeing from the, the wrath of God, uh, bargained to try and get to go to a tiny little town, and that didn't suit him very well. And he was so terrified, he, he just continued on to the cave that he was told to go to initially. The cool thing for us is is that that God not only saves us from his wrath, and he doesn't just relegate us to go live in a cave. He he saves us from wrath over our sin, but invites us into his family. We have a place that's much better than a cave to flee to. Jesus actually said he's going to prepare a room in the Father's house. And so he told his disciples. And so when you become a Christian, not only are you forgiven of your sin which you might look at it and say oh it's not nearly as bad as Sodom maybe it's not but guys we all still fall very short of the perfect holiness of God and we're in need of a savior to forgive us and that is what Jesus has done for us but not only are we forgiven of that sin but we are invited into new life you know the the, the story of the gospel it doesn't just end at the cross 
Jesus goes into the tomb, but he raises from the dead. And in that, he shows his victory over sin and death. And we're called people that are adopted into his family. We are brought into his house. We are called his own children. And we are even heirs to his kingdom. So the choice is before you today. If you are far from the Lord, are you going to choose to continue to test the patience of God? He's patient. He's very patient. But I urge you not to keep testing it. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah had no idea when that patience was going to run out, but there was a day that it did. And the same was true for the people that died in the flood outside of Noah. And there's a day, Jesus says, that there's a day coming even for the judgment of the earth. It's going to come like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to come. You don't know when your own death is going to come. And so if, if you're sitting here continuing to, to live far from God and to run after your sin, I really encourage you, stop testing the patience of God. Thank him that he's been as patient as he has and turn to him in repentance. He wants you to come. Remember, he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Rather, they would turn, repent, live. And guys, the offer to salvation is wide open. I also want to ask you, will you receive the mercy that he freely offers you at the cross? That's the decision before you today. Are you choosing to come into a relationship with him that he's paid every bit of the price to make possible? Let's pray, then we'll enter into our worship set. God, we love you a lot, and we just thank you for the way that you love us. Um, thank you that you save God, I actually want to celebrate you for your righteousness and, and your wrath as, as scary and as difficult as it is. I thank you that you're a God that doesn't tolerate evil and sin, like that you want it gone and you hate it because it's harmful. And God, I just, I, I repent of my own sin before you. I want to be a man that walks in righteousness. I want this church to be a church that walks in righteousness, Lord. Not just because we have a healthy fear of you, uh, but also because we know that your way is better, Lord. So you're worthy of all of our praise. We pray that you'd receive it from our lips and that uh, we'd give it to you in our lives. We love you so much, Lord. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.